Colorado Springs is a vibrant community full of amazing people. From business and entrepreneurship to arts and culture, it's truly the people of Colorado Springs that make this community so valuable. These are their stories. This is the Thrive for the Cause podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. John Stenberg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on Thrive for the Cause podcast, I'm joined by Kara Winger. She's a three-time Olympian. Uh, she's a javelin thrower competing in track and field. So Kara, introduce yourself to the audience, uh, where you're from, how you got to Colorado Springs, and um, I guess introduce your athletic background too, kind of as a part of that. I'm Kara. I live in Colorado Springs now, but mostly do, so that is because my husband grew up here, Russ Winger. He went to Pine Creek High School classes. Three, uh, state champion in the discus and the shot put while he was a Colorado high schooler. I'm from Washington State. Um, there, we throw the javelin in high school. It's one of very few states in the U.S. that do. So that's where I got my start in javelin, but I also played basketball, swam, uh, soccer, volleyball, just kind of anything I could do with friends. And then once I got to high school, I tried javelin, and I've been doing it for 17 years now. That's track and field. I threw javelin in high school. Not very Pennsylvania. They do have it as well. Yes. So what was that like doing? Because it's very different than any other sport, any other throwing motion or even volleyball or anything like that. What was it like when you first started to learn how to throw? Well, I had been on the varsity basketball team my freshman year. So I actually got out of winter sports really late as a freshman uh, because we went to the state tournament. It was great. My high school was really young. It's not that I was fabulous at basketball. It's that there was not that many people to play. So I went out for track really late. I thought I might be a golfer, and that didn't work out. And so I had tried track and field in eighth grade, but we didn't have javelin in middle school. So it wasn't until my geometry teacher, who was the head coach, said in class, like, Kara, you should throw the javelin. So it wasn't he didn't say, like, come out for track and field. We need more girls to run. He said, Kara, you should be a javelin thrower. And Mr. Heidenreich is, like, still part of my career. He comes to Olympic trials in Eugene and watches. And it's just really fun to have that support from the very, very beginning all the way through now. It's really cool. But I was immediately pretty good at it. I got a late start, so they put me in, like, JV meets uh, the first couple times I threw. But my first competition, I would have won the varsity with the JV distance that I threw. So I just, it was the first time that I fully, fully had control over a sport that I was also just kind of not. So I never saw it as something really frustrating until injuries kind of started popping up later. It was always like, this is fun to put work in and see results. You find like with a lot of your, uh, competitors and people, friends in track and field community, they have a similar sort of background where the sport came naturally to them, or it just kind of seemed like a like a good fit, or is it um, something that a lot of people learn sort of fall to fall in love with? Well, javelin specifically is something that people are like, oh, it chose me, you know, because it is a really weird movement, like you mentioned. And now if I try to like teach people how to throw it, they're like, how does your arm move this way? And it just did. Like it just is a natural flexibility thing. So in javelin specifically, I hear that a lot that like 
you know, I liked other stuff, but then like, this is what I was best at. And then you just move forward. Cause there's always something to improve on. So you might be naturally like more talented than other people, but then you have a lot of work to do in like little specific areas to get to the top level. So explain that journey of going from, hey, I'm pretty good at this. Like this feels good to succeed early on. And like, it's very comfortable to, you know, moving up in the ranks through college and all that sort of thing. Like, what's that uh, like at those different levels? I had a really cl clear light bulb moment in college. My sophomore year at Purdue, because I went to Purdue in Indiana, we had a home meet. It was like 30 degrees and snowing outside. I'd had a terrible practice the day before. Like, I hit myself in the back of the head with a javelin multiple times. I was just, like, not in a place that I thought I would throw really far. And I had a four meter personal best. We measure metrically in the javelin. And it just came out of nowhere. It was freezing cold and I didn't really have a good grasp of technique. So I said to myself, if I can do that on accident, what can I do in this sport on purpose? And I kind of accelerated from there. I feel like so many good things in life happen that way. Yeah. You know, you almost kind of accidentally surprise yourself and it gives you enough sort of uh, motivation to, to keep going. That's that's really interesting. Um, so what were your uh, what were your collegiate years like as a track and field athlete? I know as a that transition to college athletics is usually, I mean, for a lot of people, it's pretty it's a pretty big jump, uh, especially at that level. So what was it like, you know, throughout those four years, your athletic development? I had a pretty, I guess, rocky collegiate career. I broke my arm playing football my freshman year. I was quite the example for the athletic department about what not to do in your off time. Uh, but had a pretty successful season that year. Uh, my sophomore year started really well and ended terribly. I had a L5 stress fracture my junior year in 2007. And to this day, that's the only season in my entire track and field career that I've ever missed, which is pretty something I'm pretty proud of. Then 2008, I made my first Olympic team after a huge jump in performance and 2009 was like still pretty good. But I was never NCAA champion. I was multiple time Big Ten champion, but I just didn't have the phenomenal results that I had goals about within that structure of the NCAA. But I won Olympic trials in 2008 as a redshirt junior and then I won USA Track and Field Nationals in 2009 with another big PR. So I always had these like frustrating collegiate experiences each season, but then those were overcome by something better after the collegiate season was over. So I had this kind of preview into what professional athletics might be. And I hated that I wasn't succeeding at the collegiate level, but I also just always try to talk about improvement over time versus like what other people's goals might have been for me. Yeah. When did you decide that you wanted to try to pursue, you know, that high of a level, like the world champion, like you want to be um, competing in the Olympic stage, that, that level of competition. I think that light bulb moment my sophomore year was like that big PR that was quote unquote on accident was a really clear indication to me that I could be pretty good. That following season is when I had my back injury and was kind of just told to sit down. And that was the first time I'd had my athletic ability just really ripped away from me. 
but it also showed me where I was really deficient and that's like core strength, um, connection between my left foot and my right hand. Like I was really disjointed in how I threw before I had that terrible back injury. And that is like the real turning point in my career, like learning how to incorporate balance training, real core work versus like just abdominal crunches, you know? And I really just kind of spread my wings from there after that injury. It seems like so many athletes at a at a high level have some sort of story like that where there's I guess you'd call it like a maturity where they realize that I can't just do what I want to do on my pure athleticism right. and natural ability anymore and I need to do the little things in a meaningful way consistently over time um, to have longevity in the sport because you've been doing this for over 10 years. Yeah. So professionally right at 10 years. Yeah, that's. That's a long career, I think. Uh, so talk about some of the some of the ways that you've been able to maintain that level of longevity. And is that common in your in your sport? It's more common internationally for women to be around for as long as I've been around. There's a lot more turnover within the U.S. Uh, and that's something I've always had my eye on is pre- representing the U.S. internationally in a better way than it has been before, like for a longer period of time. And out of that has come like really cool friendships with international female javelin throwers that I just, it's crazy that they're my friends, but we just happen to do the same weird sport, you know? Um, yeah. Longevity, longevity is definitely due to learning from injury for me. I just put so much stock in rehab exercises and knowing when to take rest. Like I have recurring kind of ribs that pop out or back spasms or whatever. And like, I know when that's coming, I can feel it in a certain training session. Or if I've like been in Colorado for a little bit too long without traveling to warmth and sea level to really let my body recover, I can just take an extra day and lay on the couch and take it out to the park versus trying harder. So that's, not something I could have learned at 22, but I know at 32. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I think um, maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but uh, it seems like when you do anything at that level, injury is just sort of a part of it. You know, in like my industry and our world and everything, like we want people to be, you know, physically optimal, but with the demands of a training regimen and travel and all the stuff that goes into, you know, the, the swing of your season – that becomes a lot. So I think that sometimes it's um, it's a process of working with and around a lot of that stuff and learning your body to make sure that you're one step ahead of that injury. You right. Know, making, pulling back when you have to. And you don't necessarily understand why you need to be in equi- equilibrium until you have something happen. So it's just really clear once like you have a traumatic injury or an overuse injury or whatever that like, no, I need to take care of my body better. And you try to teach people with your words but until someone experiences pain like that they don't like fully fully get why rehab's important what was that what was that season like where you weren't able to compete you know that one time were you still sort of involved with the team and being around the track or were you sort of just pulled yourself out because it was too hard to not be a part of the competition it was it was way too hard as a collegiate athlete that that was my whole identity at that point so yeah, that was the semester that I turned 21. 
I did a lot of self-destructive things uh, involving alcohol because it was this new thing in my life. Uh, and I just, I learned a lot about not only being injured and how not to behave in other areas of my life that I could then apply to later injuries, um, but how to eventually, at the end of that season, prioritize other people. My teammate, Lindsay Blaine at Purdue, she's also from Washington, she won NCAA championships that year in the javelin. And I never did that. And I was injured when she did it. But to finally be in a place like by the end of the season where I could call her and say, like, amazing job. I'm really proud of you was quite a journey, like through that season. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, I think every once in a while, eating a big old slice of humble pie yeah. is, is what it takes, unfortunately. And that's just life, especially at that age. You know, at that time in your life when you're usually, you know, sort of uh, arrogant, a little bit untouchable, indestructible, you've never really had exactly that kind of experience. And I had nothing to be big-headed about, right? Like, I was one-time Big Ten champion, and I'd thrown pretty far the year before. But, like, I, <laughs> who did I think I was? And just mostly it was about being stripped of identity it wasn't necessarily about how i'd performed before it was just like this is the only thing that i know i'm fantastic at and now it's gone so i didn't have the maturity to seek out other things that i might be fantastic at i just like imploded and eventually learned it got better yeah it's really hard to compartmentalize i think sometimes you know because to do what you're doing you really do have to be and it's so cliche but all in i mean it's not the kind of thing that you can do with quote unquote balance necessarily. So how do you how do you do that? How do you kind of disassociate your identity from this lifestyle which is so demanding uh, and so absorbed in, you know, in that? Like how do you how do you uh, make healthy boundaries around that? Well, I think that what I've learned about myself and this isn't necessarily true for everybody, but I have to be balanced in order to be great at the javelin because I was all in for like three years post-collegiately. Like it's the only thing I did is throw the javelin and it went really well. Like those were some of the best years of my career, even to this day. But then in 2012, at the end of that first three years of professional competition, I tore my ACL. So all of a sudden I'm fully stripped of this, this identity again, but I could lean on my old, lessons from that first major injury to then go to grad school, do a photography project, focus on my relationship that turned into marriage two short years later, and just be more mature about it. And from that point on, I've really enjoyed my career a lot more because I have an amazing dog and my husband and I go backpacking and fishing and like heal in the outdoors in different ways than we could in Southern California. And I just enjoy practice so much more because it truly is a compartmentalization of my life like this is where i get to put really hard work in and see the benefit of it and then the other areas like i get fulfillment in other ways yeah talk about your husband because he understands you know at from an athletic perspective he's been there and done that and, and kind of gets the demands um how important is that support and do you feel like juggling the relationship and making sure that that's a priority along with everything else you're doing. Like, how does that all work for you guys? And, you know, kind of how have you grown into that? 
the rest threw the discus until 2016 and he threw the shot put before that as well so he was fifth in the shot in the 2008 olympic trials and fifth in the discus in 2012 so he was very close to two different olympic teams unfortunately never made one but like we did go to world championships together in 2015 so we had this just really long time to get to know each other as fellow athletes and then it's been so fun to watch him pursue other stuff since he retired in 2016 and i just loved being able to travel together the couple times that we did for competition uh when we both made that world championships team in 2015 it was by no accident my best performance at a world's and we were roommates at training camp and world championships because it was the first season we were married. So I just like people talk about how hard it is to date a fellow athlete or be married to one. And I just loved it. And we made our success together as a married couple a real, real priority in that 2015 season because there's kind of this weird curse of marriage in the throwing world, especially like a lot of people have like gotten married and that first season is really bad. So we had this conversation like that will not be the wingers like we must succeed in 2015 and we did and it was really fun. Yeah. Good for you. I think uh, self-awareness is huge and knowing that like that's the kind of thing that you're going to face and it takes some intentional focus on doing that the right way so that you have the full benefit of both things, right? Both your athletic endeavors and also the value of the relationship. Yeah. Like we had amazing sushi dates in tokyo at training camp before going to beijing world championships like so fun and those are memories that we always have we bought kitchen knives that we use almost every day like in tokyo and brought them home so mixing like that's what i mean by balance like you can compartmentalize but your performance might be even boosted by having those like other relationship memory experience type stuff going on at the same time that this isn't just about javelin. It's like my whole life wrapped into one thing. So it's more powerful. Yeah, no doubt. Explain for listeners who aren't familiar with the process, um, what it's like to go through the stages of international competition to qualify and compete in the Olympic games, because the track season, that quad or that four year cycle is a lot different than most of the other sports that we're familiar with. Uh, so kind of walk people through, what's your you know sort of four-year plan looks like and how you um approach competitions and what that process is like well i have fun stories like right now in my career 2018 is what we call an off year and we're here right at the end of it so i've already had that summer season of quote unquote off year we don't have a world championships outdoor or an olympic games in the even numbered year between summer olympics so a lot of Americans kind of take that season as rest, recovery, whatever. I took the opportunity to work with a new technical coach, Dana Lyon of the U.S. Air Force Academy, who's been my friend for 14 years, and my strength coach of almost a decade, Jamie Myers, took over all of my programming. So he's a USOC employee based in Chula Vista, California. So all of a sudden in 2018, this off year where like things don't matter quite as much internationally. I got to try all new programming and new technical stuff. And it was arguably like my best season as far as performing when I needed to at the most important major competition of the year, the Diamond League Final, and then the IAAF Continental Cup. So we have a regular season every year, but 
the odd or the even numbered year right in between summer olympics is like kind of a low time odd numbered years have world championships and a regular season outside of that as well the most important meets in the world being the diamond league meets there are five per javelin five for javelin women's javelin in the in internationally um yeah, I struggle to to describe like the way track and field works in a quad because we do have a regular season every year. But in the Olympic year, some other sports qualify like the year before or in the months leading up to it or whatever. But in track and field, we have one Olympic trials day and it's about six weeks before the Olympic Games. So it's a lot of pressure. It's unbelievable. I've never understood that about track and field in the way that that works. You might not be watching the best athletes at the games. I mean, if you consider the the entire, you know, season and the career, it's a, it's an interesting thing to consider, but I think it's just part of the sport that everybody has to deal with and it's just kind of thing that you, you know, have to work with. Right. And so US track and field, American track and field is huge, right? Like always sprinters have historically been so famous and all that stuff. Uh women's javelin in the US is not necessarily strong. Like my first Olympic Games, we only had two women go. You can have three. And then in 2012, three of us qualified. And that was the first time we'd sent a full contingent in a very long time. And then 2016, there were three people again. But it's been kind of different people each time. And I'm the common denominator. And I'm really proud of that. But it also takes kind of pressure off of the Olympic trials because they're not as deep as the men's hundred meters, you know? Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so we talked about kind of the light bulb moment. We talked about that. Um, we talked about your injuries and maybe some of the low lights of, you know, that, uh, that process. And, and did you ever during those injuries and kind of in the recovery process, think about quitting or giving up or really doubt that this was something that you could do long-term? I've I've never had a moment where I truly thought about quitting javelin. I've had really low moments just pain-wise and new sensation-wise like ACL surgery was terrible. And again, just like my back injury, I learned so much from that recovery process, but the specific pains of like getting range of motion back and what the passive range of motion machine feels like and all that stuff. Like I had no way to prepare for that. So in those moments, like it's just not, it's not about javelin. It's about like, am I still human? Like this is a very strange experience to go through, but it was so separate from javelin for me that it didn't really ever cross my mind that I couldn't do it again. Yeah, th I love that because uh, there's a, there must be some sort of purpose or I don't want to say why because that's kind of cheesy, but um, as you've done this work on yourself and kind of moved beyond that identity as an athlete and that sort of thing, do you have sort of like a, whether it's a personal mission statement or some sort of why behind, you know, you continuing this uh you know 10 plus year career as a as a competitive athlete well and i think the the physical injury stuff for me i always knew that i was tough especially because i tore my acl at the trials in 2012 
but I made the team anyway. So I went to London and competed on a torn ACL. And it was terrifying, but I was also really proud of that effort. And I threw further than I had in Beijing and it hurt really bad, but I was tough enough to do it. So the recovery stuff after that experience didn't seem like as big a deal. It was harder than I expected, but I just proved to myself that I could kind of handle anything. The parts that have been harder for me are when I was forced to make a change to get what I wanted out of my career. So I suffered a shoulder tear, a labrum tear um, at the hands of someone uh, in, during the 2015 season. And that was really devastating to me because it didn't feel like my fault. Like I, I had all this responsibility kind of on my shoulders because I was kind of the only one that knew that it had happened until I called this guy and said like this occurred. I just, I'm not looking for anything, but I need you to know that you caused this. And then to go through kind of that recovery was maybe even harder than the ACL because again, it didn't feel like my fault. Uh, it was just something I had to overcome. And then a coaching change kind of forced by it becoming clear that my old coach didn't necessarily believe in the process or wasn't all into the process was a pretty dark moment because I just, I felt very alone and had been in a position of trust for so long that all of a sudden felt like it was gone. So that has turned into amazing things and I'm really excited about it. But as an athlete, like you feel like you have control over the physical stuff and the recovery and the rehab and all that. And then it's the more emotional things that can blindside you. Blindside you. Yeah, those are... I think that's just true of life. I mean, that's certainly true in business. You know, like the things that you can't control that are unfair. Because unfair stuff happens. And that's yeah. like your, your experience with the shoulder injury. It just shouldn't have happened. It did. It was unfair. And then you still you have to deal with it. So talk about sort of your, your maturity as a mental athlete and, and how you've uh, worked on that tough enough part of, of being able to go and compete on a unstable knee and, and confidently plant and whip through a lot of torque through your whole system and all that sort of thing. Like what's the mental game like and how do you work on that fitness? I had worked with sports psychologists for a while before I had my knee injury, but I hadn't been working with anyone recently when it happened. So right when I got home from the Olympic trials that year, I started working with a woman named Wendy Borlabi and I called her my emergency sports psychologist for a long time. We no longer work together, but she was so wonderful, like in the recovery process from that injury and in supporting me and going to the Olympics. Um, so I've learned a lot from sports psychologists, but I would say right now in my career, the thing I think about a lot and like talk to other people a lot too, whether that's athletes or in the business world as well, is like having the hard conversations with people that you need to have them with so that you can move forward. Because that's something I had to do with that medical practitioner and my old coach and some other people in my life that just feel like the situation as it is, isn't helpful. So I need to be brave enough to say what I need to say so that I can then move forward. And that's something that everybody has to practice. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot easier to hide when you're not demanding that much of yourself. You know, that, that it gets to a point where you just can't not do that. Right. And, uh, 
and you can muddle along for a while like and i've done that like just been frustrated every day with the situation that i'm in it impacts your training it impacts your mental like approach to what you're doing and then you finally kind of have a breaking point where i either need to solve this or i'm never going to be happy again it feels like and then when you finally do it it's not as big a deal as you thought it would be it never is isn't it it's like you build this whole thing up in your head and then the actual experience is you know totally manageable right um you kind of mentioned the the business of being an athlete so Talk about how you support yourself, how you're able to continue to do this full time, you know, because your training regimen and everything is um, uh, obviously very intensive. The recovery regimen is obviously intensive. You still got a master's degree, you know, within all of that. So um, talk about some of those things outside of just the training and the competing and the recovering, um, the business of being an athlete and that sort of thing. Well, the business of being an athlete kind of looks different for everybody, sort of based on how you're willing to approach it. In track and field, you have kind of your main sponsors, your your shoe companies that plaster their uniform on everybody that they can uh, and hopefully pay those people to wear the uniform. So that's kind of the traditional approach. Um, I personally have been an Olympic training center athlete for nine years for like my entire professional post-collegiate career, uh, starting out in Chula Vista, California, right after school, and then moving here in 2012. So we've been here for six years, which is totally crazy to me. But so that support training at the Olympic training center comes from the USOC itself through USA track and field. So I'm considered a resident athlete, of the Olympic Training Center, and they pay for me to train there, eat there, live there if I want to, which now I don't anymore, but Russ and I did for two years here and three years in Chula Vista, and then medical recovery kinds of stuff. So massage, Cairo, needling, cupping, Normatec, like everything. So that is incredibly helpful, and it's something that I like to talk about a lot, especially now, because there aren't a whole lot of people that spend their entire careers within that system, but I've been really grateful for it, especially in the last couple of years. And when I tore my ACL, we didn't really know we were going to maybe move to my family in Washington or Russ's family in Colorado Springs. And thank God we chose Colorado Springs, because then I had this knee injury, and then I had this built-in recovery system at the Olympic Training Center. That's kind of step one for me, being an OTC athlete. And there's a lot more to it if you want me to continue talking yeah, sure. about no, it. I'm yeah. interested in, in kind of like how it all comes together because I know that's um, that's helpful, but you need more than new shoes and right. you know, clothes to train in and like meals and stuff like that. You, 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 there's other aspects of it that I'm curious about. Yeah. Well, and as kind of you know, new sports get added to the Olympics every, every quad. And in this age of social media, like not only those extra sports, but also people that are quote unquote influencers kind of like dilute an athlete's opportunity for sponsorship in, in a way. So there's like a lot of talk about, you know, you can be an athlete and an influencer but an influencer sometimes has a lot more time to like devote to promoting themselves and the product and stuff like that when like you're an athlete and you train and it's just kind of this difficult 
what are you willing to put out there as an influencer versus like what's your actual brand? So that's something that I'm trying to explore right now. And as somebody that's fairly, I consider myself to be introverted. Uh, I'm at most an ambivert. I like to be like kind of private about my life it can be really difficult to feel like you have to talk to your phone on an Instagram story when that doesn't feel natural whatsoever. Like I'd rather set my GoPro up on a hike and like see what comes of it at the end of the day. So it's like, there is a lot more opportunity in certain aspects because you can show like who you are on social media and let brands come to you or seek them out yourself. But there's just a lot more people that have that opportunity as well. I still don't understand the whole influencer thing and like what that even means. And so, yeah, that's that's really gotta be frustrating when you have like a legitimate pursuit and you have to vie for scant resources with, you know, the latest booty by, you know, whoever. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Thing. And like, <laughs> it's not my place to judge those people either. But I, yeah, it's just, it's difficult to know where your place really is when like it used to be so much more defined. And um, I will sound really old saying this, but like I didn't get Instagram till halfway through my professional career. So being someone that didn't grow up, like I got a cell phone my freshman year of high school and it was early 2000, 2000, 2000. I had like an early cell phone, like Nokia with the changing like faceplate and stuff like that. And I, I'm really happy to have grown up kind of with that technology as far as like the technology was growing up with me, you know, versus growing up always having had it. So I'm really grateful for that in so many cases, but it's also just not a natural thing for me. And it feels like something that's very important to brands. Um, In other ways, I'm very intentional about what I post. So maybe that's more impactful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the business of being an athlete is a lot about just figuring out how you're comfortable presenting yourself. And for me, that's not necessarily speaking like a podcast is much less intimidating to me than video. I like to write, I should write more. And that's something that feels like my avenue. So yeah. But other, other sources of income are like random speaking engagements or, um, ambassadorship with certain organizations um, in town. I've done some stuff with Olympic City USA, and that's really fun. New stuff that comes along. I try to be really open to a lot of different opportunities, especially in the last couple years, because sometimes those can turn into more significant things if you're just willing to spend your time to get to know people. Sure. I think mentorship and just kind of quote-unquote networking at this stage of my life has been something that's really fun because typically like I am going to do those things with people that I really enjoy and I really like their story and I really feel like I could contribute something to it and vice versa uh, versus just going to parties to go to parties. Are there many opportunities in Colorado Springs for athletes to network and do those sorts of things or is it something that you... um you know, being that the USOC headquarters is here, are there a lot of resident athletes around that you're able to sort of network and interact with? Yeah, athletes themselves for sure, especially people that have been through the training center. Uh, I say a lot, the Rio Olympic Games in 2016 were my favorite by far. And one of the reasons 
for that was that I knew so many more people in the village than I had known in previous games because even if athletes don't live here in Colorado Springs, they've probably been to the training center and I've probably met them even if we're just passing in the hallway. Then in the village, in the elevator, you say, I recognize you. Like, were you in Colorado Springs XYZ? And that's really, really fun. So those networking between athlete opportunities are definitely one of my favorite parts of living in the Springs. Um, but headquarters is fun to interact with the, the powers that be as well and just kind of be more aware of what's going on within kind of the USOC and my NGB and stuff like that and just being more of a part of the the true long-lasting organizational side of it versus like my day-to-day practice. Yeah, and that's that's something I want to uh, follow up with. I, I went through your old blog. So this was from, I think like 2010-ish. Um, and you kind of talked about no, this is from later. This is after Rio. Um, you talk about why you focus on you know, continuing to throw the javelin, who you're throwing it for, um, that responsibility you know that you feel to lead the sport within the USA, and as you've said, you know the longevity of your career being sort of an outlier, especially in your your event. Um, I'm just going to read this quote, uh, and I want you to kind of share your thoughts on that if it's if it's still how you feel that sort of thing. So I know that this is just sport. I think about that often. It's only a sport. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But why then do I continue to compete? Because I want to see just how good I can be, and I can't keep doing the same things and expect a different result. Yeah. End quote. Okay. Well, that was after Rio, you say. Um, After London... 2017 our world championships I felt even more so that way like 2017 was really difficult for me it was the first year that I had been healthy in a long time and I threw really far but then I didn't throw far like when I needed to at the same time I just I felt like my support system was kind of crumbling around me and I really needed to find those people that I truly did feel proud to represent and, you know, enter Dana Lyon, my new coach, and uh, Jamie kind of taking more of a bigger role in my training. So, yeah, I, I've thought even more about who I represent and how I can do that in a more powerful way uh, very recently. Because the business of track and field, like, you can kind of make of it what you want to. And I have this still forming idea of trying to marry brands with causes that I care about. So I'm a part of Olympians for Public Lands, a very small organization, but one that like Olympians enjoy using public lands. And in Colorado, that's such a natural thing. If you know my husband, that's such a natural thing. We're always outside. But other stuff too, like removing plastic from the ocean or preventing it from going in in the first place. So I listen to a lot of podcasts that have like interviews of these people that create these really impactful, cool causes and systems to improve the world. So I would love to somehow work with brands that support those causes or work with those causes and bring attention to them through my performance or through other interaction that I might have with them outside of sport. So in that way, I'm hoping to like, further define who I'm representing because for me representing the USA 
has always been way too overwhelming. Like I get to the Olympics and I'm like, oh God, like I don't know what those faces are. Like I'd rather see my mom, my dad, my brother, right, right. my husband, like be really clear on who exactly is paying attention. For sure. And I used to get like a lot of performance anxiety kind of from that idea that people were paying attention. But the truth is that people watch because they want to see something amazing. So I try to keep that in mind too. But if I can just really narrow it down to who exactly is on my team. That's helpful, helpful for me. And when I say that it's just sport, like javelin's a weird little niche of track and field. And a lot of people, like half the elementary school kids I was at this assembly with last week knew what javelin was. Like only half, you know, and that's totally expected. That's a lot more than I do expect usually. So really when it, really comes down to it it is about just my pursuit of my best i don't expect people to adopt carowinger as a household name because i'm i'm just a javelin thrower i'm doing my very best at it but it's this just weird little world do you think that beyond sort of your competitive career you'll continue to be involved in track and field and continue whether it's coaching or in some sort of advocacy role or that sort of thing uh, to be involved or do you think you'll at some point when you're not an athlete sort of make a clean break and pursue other interests i've always felt like i would pursue other interests i can see myself being involved with like a camp per year i would love to do a washington like high schoolers camp even this coming summer it's something i've thought a lot about in the last month or so so doing those like more concentrated coaching experiences i would really enjoy i don't like to entertain the thought of like full-time coaching it's not something i would like you don't have to yeah that's a <laughs> that's a good self-awareness thing though because if you're a bad coach or you're not right and the best athletes don't make the best coaches like yeah. that's not a thing yeah 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 100 percent. yeah that's a that's a good distinction to make because i think some people don't know when to I don't know if you've seen this, but it seems that some athletes don't know when to sort of make that break. Right. And uh, you can end up doing, you know, more damage to someone else's career, you know, by not being in that appropriate role. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And I mean, I would be a javelin mentor. Like that's totally within my wheelhouse to talk to people about like how to approach an international career or whatever. And I have done that with various like collegiate girls, especially in the last five years or so that are like, I've thrown really far early how do you be professional at track and field, blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of, it's very case by case, especially in Javelin, because I have a lot of, there, there are a lot of people that hold down a full-time job and train for athletics. Um, yeah, so I 100% agree that you can not be doing the right thing and have the best intentions. And I just think I would be sort of both. <laughs> like, sure, I'll do this for you. I don't necessarily love it, but it's fun to see results too. And I have had like good coaching results, which is, is really surprising to me, but really fun because they appreciate it. And it's a small enough time commitment that it stays positive, you know? For sure. Um, what's sort of a, at least at this phase in your career, and I know this isn't a, this is kind of your off year, quote unquote, but what's a day in the life in terms of, you know, training and eating and recovering and just kind of the, the usual sort of mundane stuff that you do as part of a you know all of the other days of the year that aren't you know at yeah. rio or in london well and again i'm weird compared to other people in track and field like i think that i need a lot more balance than other people think that they do maybe 
and I tried to be all in before and all that stuff. So in 2018, I switched from like four days a week, two a day training, two days a week, once a day training to six days a week, only once per day. So from down to like 10 or 12 sessions a week to six. Yes. Very nice. Thank you, Jamie Myers. And I just, there's a thing called training age, right? So I turned 32 in 2018. I've been just a javelin thrower at that point. I had been for 14 years from college on. And I try to play other sports. I try to hike. I swim a lot for my training. So I try to like balance that unilateral aspect of my sport. Um, But switching up that training was just awesome for me. There's just so much more emotional energy to give to one session per day than I ever had, especially the last four years or so with those two a day sessions. So a day in the life, like a Monday, I wake up, walk my dog first thing with my mocha coffee. Uh, We live in Briargate area, so there are a lot of really great paths like within the neighborhood. And she just loves it every single day. She's looking for bunnies. Go to practice, usually in the morning, sometimes later in the afternoon, depending on my coach is available or I feel like it or whatever. Is that at the Air Force Academy? So I split my time between the Olympic Training Center and the Air Force Academy. If I'm throwing javelins, I'm at the Air Force Academy. If I'm throwing balls or lifting, I'm at the Olympic Training Center. So sometimes I'm only at the academy once per week. Other times it's twice per week. Uh, Mostly I'm at the training center. But the biggest benefit of starting to work with Dana is that she is the Air Force Academy javelin coach. She was a cadet there, graduated in 2006. And now she's back as an employee on staff for Coach Lindemann track and field. And that's just amazing. I didn't have eyes on me. I was in like a long distance coaching relationship for five years. So this past year has been just so much more accountability. Uh, Even on hard days, like it's so much more positive because she's there with me, like sharing in kind of that journey. So wake up, walk Maddie, eat breakfast, go to practice either at the training center or the academy. On my way home, I'll usually stop for lunch, like at McAllister's Deli, or I'm like that it's very... It's closed, right? On North Academy, the one closed. Is it really? I no. think so. That's my, my go-to. You haven't been in a while, I guess. No. Then. I haven't trained in a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, El Taco Ray is also fabulous. Um, I hit up Qdoba a lot, and there I'll like watch video or write in my journal, like my training journal which I hadn't done for a really long time until 2018. And it really paid off for me. It was great. And then my husband and I renovated his mom's house for the past year. Uh, We did ours way back in 2014 and she liked it so much that she hired us to do her house. So I would usually go in the afternoon and like work there, like scrape popcorn or prime the walls or uh, hand rest tiles with fact butter on them or whatever. So manual labor in the afternoon and then home to take the dog to the park, grocery store on the way from there, dinner, go to bed. Life. Just life stuff. Yeah. I love that. So changing my training up to once a day training, it just opens up so many hours in the day. And the reason kind of that we did that is that, A, I'm old enough. My body knows like how to respond to certain methods of training, but I also was spending tons of time doing stuff that didn't actually impact javelin. 
So I just am so relieved to be more intentional in my training that that's kind of carried over into the rest of my life as well. Like, no, I won't sit here and scroll Instagram for a half hour in my car because I'm tired and I don't want to go into the gym. This is my time to train and this is my time to do other stuff. So I do the video review at lunch and the journal writing at lunch, but sometimes I'm also writing business emails or like interacting with brands that I want to be a part of or like just being more intentional in my everyday life as well as my training. Yeah, that the time thing and and you talked about the training age and there just comes a certain point where that uh what do they call it? minimal effective dose is much different or the um return on investment for certain activities is mm-hmm. just not there because you're not you don't need the same level of volume to necessarily improve this skill like you're making technical improvements but you're you're at such a high level of your total probably potential or capacity that at this point you're fine tuning and really kind of optimizing rather than having to push the volume to get you to a certain place well and also like that kind of mentality and training really echoes what you have to do at the olympic games like no i don't have 30 attempts in practice to get this down i have to do it in six And when I get to the Olympics or I get to world championships, like I must perform right now. So that has really helped my mentality going into competition too. Yeah. And I, I, we can't not talk about some of your experience at the Olympic games and just kind of, you know, what that feels like, what that experience is like, whether it's, you know, the first time you walked out in the opening ceremonies or, you know, after all of that and you're on the runway holding your javelin, just like you've done a million times but never like that. Right. I mean, talk about some of those sort of unique experiences, any memories that come to mind that were particularly meaningful to you or just crazy, you know, an experience. So kind of my craziest one was 2008. It's the only time I've walked in the opening ceremonies. And my friend Jillian Camarena Williams, she was my two-time Olympic roommate. So we were roommates in Beijing and also London. So we walk in the opening ceremonies. We were in the first and second row of the USA delegate because the flag bearer that year was Lopez Lamong, a distance runner for the US. So whenever your team has the flag bearer, your team gets to be at the front of the delegation. So we were like in all the pictures, you know, and it was just this really cool, like right at the front of this giant Team USA first Olympics. Beijing Olympic Stadium, the bird's nest was absolutely amazing. And you can still watch that opening ceremonies on the internet because it was like unbelievable. So fantastic experience. You get back to the Olympic Village, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. They keep the dining hall open so everyone can eat when they get home. You're exchanging like your fancy Ralph Lauren beret for someone else's hat and just like really cool. And then you finally are like stumbling back towards bed. And there was this line of volunteers checking credentials to let you get back into the village. And Jill and I are walking towards them. And all of a sudden, like this guy has his arms around us. And he was like, you know, how, what do you think of it? And how, how's it going? And blah, blah, blah. Kobe Bryant. Like just chummed up with Jill and I to like get through this line of volunteers. And I looked back, back over my shoulder and there's just a crowd of people like chasing us, you know, black mamba, right? Like there. he yeah. was just trying to like, it, like in just incognito, get through this line of volunteers and like run to wherever he was going to stay. It was so funny. And Amazing. like, it was crazy. And as soon as we got through that line of volunteers, he was like, peace out. Like I got to go, you know? Yeah. Right. You served your purpose. Yeah. Right but Jill and I just looked at each other and we we're like, holy crap. Like that was 
already this amazing night and then this hilarious interaction happened that's so cool though because you guys have a shared you guys had a shared experience there i mean it's not like you bumped into him on the street somewhere in Hollywood and tried to get a picture like you were both athletes yeah. representing your country, which is really cool. On the same Team USA, yeah. We were oh, yeah. all just 2008 Olympians. Like, it was really, really weird, yeah. Are there any athletes that you met that might be high profile like that that um, surprised you either for better or worse or interactions that you've had that you thought were really pleasant or not so pleasant? Um, You don't have to put anybody on name blast. Names. Yeah. No, I... So I've always been impressed by Michael Phelps. Like I know he's had his own demons and stuff like that. But the first time I ever remember seeing him was getting ready for that Beijing opening ceremony. And, um, you know, he was the flag bearer in 2016, uh, which was super cool. But I just remember like that was before the Olympics started. And I knew who he was because a lot of people already did. But that was before his eight gold medals in Beijing. And he just seemed so normal talking to people. And I was just kind of on the fringe of that conversation. But then living in Colorado Springs and seeing like his training group come here consistently to train every year and him have gone through all of these things in life, but still be like having normal conversations with fellow athletes has just always been something that I've been impressed by. He might have like weird stigmas in the media for certain things that happened to him or whatever, but on a like very basic like fellow athlete level, I think he's always been impressive. That's really cool. And I think that because what you guys do is so niche, like you said, there's very few people in the world that you can really sort of connect with on what you're really what your life's really like and, and having that level of I don't want to call it celebrity, but he does. Um, it's probably hard to just have normal interactions with people who aren't starstruck or don't think of you as you know, this crazy. Yeah. Uh, Cause like there are times that there are like water polo campers at the training center and he's like walking down, you know, the little Olympic pathway and they bombard him. And then I'm like, Oh, like <laughs> you, you are also fellow athletes and you could act that way, but just some people don't. So that's, that is a lot to deal with as, as much as you think like, Oh, poor you, you're famous. But for sure, when you're just trying to do your job, it like can be difficult to, especially when that's just a byproduct of being an athlete. It's not like, he didn't become a swimmer to get famous, right? He loves to do what he does. That's his craft. And that's just kind of, you know, the, the double-edged sword of, yeah. of being the best at it. Yeah. It just comes with the territory. But I also had this really fun, like, I should have been gambling that day experience. So I was sitting. I didn't make the final of the Olympics in 2008. I haven't made a final yet. I've been very close. But the night of the women's javelin Olympic final in Beijing, I was sitting with my college coach, Rowdy Zuruik, and Russ, um, my boyfriend at the time. It was seven years after he came to surprise me and watch me in Beijing that we were back there at world championships together, which was super cool. But we're sitting in the third tier of the bird's nest, like this giant stadium, watching Olympic finals. And one of them was the men's 400, um, the other one was the men's 110 hurdles and then the women's javelin was going on at the same time. So I predicted a U.S. sweep of the men's 400 and it happened. Before the 110 hurdles finalists even came out, I was like, lane five is going to win. And I think he was Cuban, this guy. And my coach had been a hurdler. So he was like, oh my gosh, you're right. He's absolutely going to win. He did. And then uh, Barbara Spatakova, she's the world record holder of the women's javelin from Czech Republic. She's now my friend, which I'm so proud of. But 
she, this was her first eventual gold medal and um, a Russian who has now been stripped of her silver medal officially was just throwing out of her mind that day. And Barbara had to have a personal best Olympic record um, to win that Olympics on her last throw. And before her last throw, I was like, she's absolutely going to do this. Like Barbara's got it. And she did. So I had like these three for three, like crazy prediction. Just, I was just joking around kind of, but with Barbara, I like truly believed in her ability. And yeah, that was a really fun moment for me. That's a good point that I, I guess I never really thought of until now, but how much, you know, really amazing, how many amazing moments you've been able to witness just by being there, mm-hmm. right. And being able to observe, you know, as a fan, just as much as anybody else, um, uh, you know, the events taking place. Cause that's one thing about track and field. There's like a lot of things going on at once. Yeah. So even in the midst of your event, you know, and especially if it's a high profile type of event, everything else stops so that we can watch the hundred meter dash or whatever, but even the javelin stops right. in the infield. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you're already in like psyched up and yeah. you have to wait for 10 seconds for that race. But, uh, yeah, so that's a really interesting sort of perk that I hadn't even considered of being able to witness, you know, in a lot of instances, some really, really cool, moments in athletic history yeah uh, in london i had a torn acl i did my best um but it was just it was pretty devastating for a second olympics i had had like my practice the practice of my life before that olympic trials before i get injured so it was just a bummer like mostly i did learn a lot from it but uh purdue took a contingent of john purdue club members like the kind of alumni athletics association to London and I was able to get tickets for diving, 10 meter diving. Uh, I didn't necessarily have an interest in it before, but my fellow Purdue American Olympian that year was David Badaya, who won the 10 meter diving like gold medal for the first time since Greg Luganis in the eighties. So I was sitting with his family and friends watching him win this gold medal. And to me, like that was the reason that I was in London. I like, I did a little better than I did in Beijing, but like to watch my friend win gold with his family and like document their reactions. Like I was like the photographer of his family. That's amazing. And it just meant a lot to me to have that experience. Be a part of that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a support system thing. Like I wouldn't have been there without the Purdue people that like valued kind of my role in that Olympics too. So just kind of that whole circle, full circle kind of story was really cool. Yeah. That's an important thing to remember though. Cause when you see those athletes and you see the person, uh, there's so many people behind them doing exactly what you're saying, being in a support role and making sure that uh, that they're able to do everything that they want. So there's there's a huge ripple effect there, you know, of of those moments, which I think is really cool, mm-hmm. and why and why sport is so attractive, you know, to so many people and the, and the impact that it can have and all that sort of thing. But uh, is there an event like if you watch, you're just like, man, I really wish I could do that, or I'd love to try that, or or uh, do that thing? Well, my favorite, like most amazing events to me are the 400 hurdles and the 800 meters. They're like the worst ones. Like, but so astounding that like people can do that that fast. Like I've run like 800 meters in middle school. And then after that, like as fast as I can. And it's just, it is so incredibly brutal and they excel at it. And it's just amazing to have any kind of little tiny bit of understanding of what that takes right right a half mile in a little over two minutes it's a lot it's crazy i wouldn't have guessed that i wouldn't have guessed running events I don't know. i'm just i like 
It's so I impressive. Ran. You're right. I mean, seeing yeah. seeing those feats of athleticism and knowing that like that's a human person. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're yeah. made of the same stuff as me, at least partly. Yeah, percentages might be a little bit different, <laughs> but yeah. And I in high school, I hurt my hand. I tore connective tissue in my hand my senior year. So I was like, I'll run the hurdles while I can't throw the javelin. And my friend's mom was a 400 hurdle in college. And she was like, Kara, you, you will die. Like this will be terrible. Make it over the third hurdle. It'll be a miracle. Right. And in high school, it was only 300 hurdles, but I will never forget. Like when I was like gasping, stumbling across the finish line of my first race, all I could hear was her laughing from the stands. (laughs) Like that's exactly what happened. So I do have like some tiny idea of like how much pain they're in at the end of that race. And you kind of talked about in pieces some of these practices, but you have to, you know the saying, you can't pour from an empty cup. Like you really can't give a lot of yourself to your sport or the causes or any of the other business-related endeavors, that sort of thing, if you're just tore up and worn out. So whether it's physically, you know, intellectually or things that interest you emotionally, spiritually, are there routines or things that you continue to go to to kind of refuel yourself, to kind of fill your cup back up? Definitely. Spending time with my dog. She's a yellow lab. Maddie. She's so adorable. We adopted her basically when she was like almost two and now she's four and she's just watching her blossom in our care. It's just the funnest thing ever. So Maddie's amazing. I love to be outside. Uh, My husband is a fly fishing guide part-time, but he's also just this like career outdoors person. Like he that's where he gets to fill his cup back up. And throughout our relationship, like he's really taught me that. I used to be very singularly focused and through injuries and all that stuff, like we've kind of talked about that. I learned how to relax more and how to do other things. But he was a huge part of that for me. Like, well, why do you need to do yoga when we could go hiking right now and get like the same benefit? I'm like, oh, you're right. Okay, let's go be together. Um, I travel a lot. Like I, we moved a lot when I was little and Russ and I both like kind of have this thing where if one of us is gone for too long, like we start to get antsy, like, should we move? Like, (laughs) should we go somewhere else? And maybe just in Colorado Springs, but just like change has always been something that's really fun for me, not scary. So having a new adventure is always something that I really look forward to. And even if I'm just training in a different place, I love to kind of switch up the routine. For sure. Um, you mentioned podcasts that you like to listen to. Are you, um, and any in particular that are particularly interesting? Ted radio hour is my favorite of all time. I get so frustrated when there aren't new episodes for a long time. Cause I like binged them this summer, just one after another, after another, uh, recently I've been into skimmed from the couch. They interview female entrepreneurs, fellow female entrepreneurs. I listened to this one's like a little bit, I don't know, self-punishment, not really, but uh, it's just super well done, but it's called believed. And it's the story of the USA gymnastics survivors. And just like, I thought very well done as a female, like, I had pretty emotional reactions to certain episodes and it was just, it felt really important to listen. Are you a reader? Do you read much or books that you enjoy? I'm a member of three book clubs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one is a big group of women here in town. So that's like mostly fiction. 
our next meeting will be about Harry Potter number two. Yeah. Um, the, one of the reasons it got started was because a lot of the women hadn't read Harry Potter and there are a couple that are huge fans. So now we're making our way through Harry Potter, but other stuff has been covered too. Uh, the other one is with my very good friend, Ariana Ince. She throws the javelin too. She lives in Houston. Russ and I just started our own book club, the two of us. So we'll have our first meeting tonight, actually. That's uh, So today's December 21st, so the week before <laughs> Christmas. By the time this airs, the first inaugural meeting of the book club will have completed. The Winger so, Book Club, yeah. yes, yes. What's the book? Uh, this one is Undaunted Courage by Stephen E. Ambrose. It's about Meriwether Lewis and the Lewis and Clark expedition. I listened to it via audiobook on my drive home with Maddie the dog to Washington for Thanksgiving. Not my typical. So Russ is very like opinionated about the books that he reads. And I'm more of a fiction reader. He's more of a nonfiction reader. So I think it'll be mostly nonfiction in our book club, which is good for expanding my horizons. But Yeah, that's um, we we both Elizabeth and I both read a lot of nonfiction. So we have to be intentional about occasionally just like switching gears to make it less serious, right? Yeah. Like, I need a break from all this thinking that matters. <laughs> yeah, and, and just recently, because, uh, let's see, 10 days ago, we had our little boy. Uh, so we're very much in the swing of all things like new parenting and not sleeping and doing all that stuff. Yeah. So we got into uh, what I've started calling read and feed, which is she's feeding the baby whatever time of day and and uh, we started reading the chronicles of narnia so i'll oh, just like fun. read them yeah. out loud while they're doing their thing so it's kind of been a super nice break from all of the nonfiction that we're into but also like kind of a fun little i don't want to call it family tradition but fun little thing that we've just used to kind of cope with the exhaustion yeah. and the delirium and all that. Well, and starting the baby, starting baby Owen off like on the right foot reading right. to him. Yeah. That's right. He's going to be a nerd and he can't, uh, there's nothing we can do about it. Best kind of human. Yeah. That's right. Nerds mm-hmm. around the world. And hopefully he's got his mom's athletic uh, genes and can be well-rounded. Yeah, she's fantastic. So earlier in the conversation, um, you talked about coming to Colorado Springs six years ago. And sort of that transition from training at uh, sea level in Chula Vista to being here at, you know, 7,000 feet and like that difference in atmosphere. What's that been like for you sort of physically to acclimate to the, you know, to the climate here in your training regimen and and sort of getting settled into a city here that's very different than Southern California? Well, I love Colorado, first of all, and mostly Colorado Springs. I just love when I'm on my, my Maddie walks every morning, like the mountain's gorgeous and Coming from the Pacific Northwest, where it rains all the time, I would rather be cold and dry than cold and wet. And that was like a huge plus for me moving here instead of Washington. So I just, the sunshine is fantastic. I love it. That being said, I say that training as a javelin thrower at altitude is an exercise in believing in myself. Because... People think that javelin is like a golf ball, like it's going to go way further at altitude, but it's actually just heavy enough that it needs more support from the atmosphere than it gets in Colorado Springs. So two meters might be like an exaggeration on what you could add to any training throw, but it is a definite difference in the way that like I feel, how I recover between reps, the way the javelin flies and all that stuff like versus when I'm at altitude. So I just have to continue to keep that in mind that I'm probably better than I think right now. That's a really, yeah, yeah, that's a really tricky 
thing to f- sort of figure out too. And I don't know how long it took you when you came here and started training to figure out that, oh man, like the atmosphere and the, and the aerodynamics of the implement and everything is different and that's affecting the outcome. So I need to be able to conceptualize and contextualize that to understand how I'm really doing outside yeah. of just the result. Yeah. Well, and then add on to that, at the Air Force Academy, the track faces north or the runway faces north. So the mountains are to your west and the wind comes like ripping off the top of them, the foothills and like swoops over the the track side to side. So it's just always a consistent, really strong crosswind. Like a training shoe, just a, a shoe will like blow over in the wind. So dealing with those conditions at practice is very difficult. There's been, I think, one day in six years that I've walked away from practice. Otherwise, you like change the direction that you're throwing, the throw right into the wind, or just really have to focus on how your body feels versus how the javelin's flying, which can be really good for technique like analysis because it really forces your mind to like focus on what actually matters versus the flight of the javelin. I struggle with like javelin tip control sometimes. So it's not helpful for me when it's super windy to like not have that feedback, but living in Colorado Springs and having access to the outdoors and the sunshine and my husband's family and all that stuff, it's so much worth all of the difficulties for training. Plus like any endurance athlete, when I go down to sea level, I feel like a million dollars. Like it's really fun to go to competitions and to all of a sudden be like, yeah, I am in great shape. This is cool. Thank you, Colorado. Yeah. I don't imagine there are too many. I mean, I know a lot of the resident sports here aren't necessarily track and field sports. I mean, it's not. Or power sports really. Yeah. Yeah. In Colorado Springs specifically, there aren't a lot of those types of athletes, you know, that are residents training here compared to Chula Vista. So it's a little bit of a different sort of atmosphere for, for you, but, um, very interesting things to consider. Did you have, did you know that coming here ahead of time? Did anybody kind of fill you in that like, here's what to expect or was that all new? Well, I didn't really think about how the altitude and everything would affect the javelin specifically, but we had visited Russ's family for a lot of years and, we would show up and for the first like three days I was going to bed at like 6 30 PM. Like I was just so worn out by altitude and that still happens to me if I'm gone for a long time. When I get home, it's like jet lag probably plus altitude, but it just, it takes me a while to get back into kind of the swing of things at altitude. Um, yeah. The flip side of that is like we, Russ and I got engaged in 2014 on a backpack in Olympic National Park. And we had only ever backpacked and done a lot of hiking in Colorado. So it was really sweet to to me that he wanted to take me to my home state and take me hiking and all that stuff. But we got above Timberline at like 8,000 feet. And we were like, what is this? Like, this is crazy. Not only that, but we're like sweating profusely because it's just slightly humid, but could also breathe so much easier. Like it was very interesting to have this totally different outdoor experience because all I knew was Colorado and super high altitude and dry. Oh, you, you talked about being involved in some of the Olympic city USA types of things. Um, how do you feel the Colorado Springs community supports the resident athletes or, or, um, do you feel welcomed here? Do you feel like there's a lot of community, uh, support behind you and that sort of thing or what's the what are those interactions been like 
So I train not only at the academy and the training center, but I spend some of my time at 24 hour fitness as well. Uh, because I like the pool there, it's closer to my house and Russ trains there now that he's retired. So we can still like spend time together doing that, which is really fun. But it's really amazing to me to like look around at the public gym and see how many people have like a USA shirt or Olympic rings on or whatever. Like the other day I, I was like, I always notice and I'm like, are, are you an Olympian? Like I want to talk to them, but my like introversion like doesn't let me do that. But I'm always impressed by like what people are wearing in the grocery store or whatever, just all around town. Like the, the Olympics kind of permeates like every little part of Colorado Springs. And I like that. I'm really excited about the Olympic Museum. I got to go to the International Olympic Museum in Lausanne, Switzerland, uh, two years ago. And it was just gorgeous and cool. And I selfishly look forward to like seeing my friends in the Olympic Museum, you know, like in all the displays and stuff, um, just as a member of kind of that community for a long period of time now. So, yeah, I feel welcomed. I've never had an experience that wasn't welcoming, but I also spend a lot of time like within those communities. So, yeah, and I know that the community is proud of not just the resident athletes, but just uh, has that, you know, sort of value of, um, you know, the Olympic City USA sort of brand. You know, fitness yeah, yeah activity level for sure and that's my favorite part about Colorado like I if I go to another city and there aren't like 14 dog park options I'm like what is this <laughs> like how do you spend out time outside with your animal yeah 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 so speaking of let's just uh as we start to wrap up here let's do some rapid fire things just to give the listeners an idea of your Colorado Springs experience what you love about the community outside of uh sort of what we've already talked about uh, but before we do that, just want to acknowledge you for, um, man, just the dedication to do all of the hard work over the years that takes someone who's gifted athletically um, and makes a real athlete or real, you know, sort of role model type of, of person out of it and, and has that longevity of a career. Like I know um, just from observing that lifestyle, you know, to some degree that it's, uh, there's a lot of hard days. It's a lot of you know, ups and downs and it's not always glamorous. Um, but it sounds like along the way you've derived a lot of value from your career and that it's brought you a lot of good things and will continue to do so. So, um, just want to uh, acknowledge you for that dedication and that pursuit and, you know, being there for your fellow athletes and, and being able to support their journeys as well. So what is your favorite Colorado Springs establishment? could be a coffee shop, a brewery, a place you like to go, have a good experience, or go for date night, that sort of thing. Russ and I eat at Sushi Rakio all the time. Um, I also had ramen and a hot toddy at Suga's restaurant last night. Fabulous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah Suga's right downtown is a, is a favorite. Um, what do you think is the most underrated part of living in Colorado Springs? The weather. People think it's freezing cold, and it sometimes is, but the sunshine is just my favorite thing ever. It's so easy to take for granted, right, because it's your normal. I grew up in the Pittsburgh area, which is similar to the Pacific Northwest, where, you know, literally we have months at a time where the sun doesn't shine. And people don't think that that's a real thing, but it really is. So and it's a huge bummer, yeah. It's a huge bummer. It's so easy to take for granted, you know, just that the sun is out every day. So I think in some ways, like, we like to acknowledge that, but it is something that can be taken for granted. For sure. Um, any words of encouragement for listeners, maybe 
quotes or mantras or things that you've either, either learned from a mentor or a coach or, you know, have come up with on your own that you kind of, you know, always hold on to or go back to, to, you know, kind of motivate yourself or to, to be inspired? Just the idea that the work along the way is worth it too. That's a huge thing for me, whether it's rehab exercises for me or just training itself. I've known a lot of really successful, and maybe not a lot, but like a couple different women specifically that were like, I just loved training. And you have to love those in-between steps to then make the end result even more. Yeah, and speaking of Kobe Bryant, I mean, that's kind of his whole, that's his whole thing is he's making way more free throws than everybody else. Like it's like the process and the training and the journey is like what, he thrives in and yeah. not the championships and all that kind of stuff. It's, I think those are few and far between those types of people that really like thrive on the process. Um, and the outcome is sort of a added bonus, but, um, because that is the life, man, that's, that is the day to day. And those, yeah. um, big opportunities are few and far between. So be able to, to be able to really enjoy the full value of those, the process has to mean something as well. For sure. And I just like, it sounds so cliche. It's not about the destinations about the journey, but, the destination means so much more if you can intentionally do all those things like with it in mind, like you're still recognizing them every day, but being able to look in the face, like what your goals are and see that these action items like on the way are just as important is really powerful. Have you encountered athletes or whether it was teammates or people that you've just, you know, kind of met through the sport that you thought were incredibly gifted and could have, done really well at an extremely high level, but just weren't able to do that. And they were really too tied to the outcomes or maybe too focused on, you know, uh, the big things and neglected some of the, some of the smaller. I'm sure that things. I have, but I don't, they don't really come to mind. And that could be because they're not memorable. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> right? I was going to say, that's probably exactly the point yeah. though, is like nobody remembers those people. So it makes you wonder how much good talent is wasted. Yeah. You know, and how much uh, we miss out on from. Well, and part of, part of the, that not being memorable is that you get so much enjoyment about like through doing the training stuff, like with somebody who also values it. And so that's like where your relationship is formed. So if there's someone that's not doing those things, they're just not around. Like you're just not interacting with them. Like my training partner of three years in Chula Vista, Mike Hazel, will always be like my my big brother because we had so many moments of like, this hurts really bad, but it's worth it, like together. And that's really long lasting. So. Yeah, it seems like shared suffering is like the quickest way yeah. to form a bond, you know? <laughs> yeah. I've got friends who have started practices and have a similar place in their life and business. And it's like, we do the same thing, we commiserate. But it's it's interesting because, I don't know, there's something encouraging about knowing that other people are going through similar things and that it's okay and that it's not it's not abnormal it's part of the process like you're saying and it's just uh having a little bit of camaraderie goes a long way so yeah and i think you recognize that when you look back on it like at the time you're like i didn't realize we were becoming best friends <laughs> but there we were yeah it's like that quote in the office he says i wish there's a way to know that you were having the good old days you know when you were in them or something like exactly, that exactly yeah yeah um Wrapping up, just uh, let the community know where they can connect with you. I know that you, you do have a social media presence. Uh, so for folks that want to kind of get a glimpse into you know, your training and what you got going on, how can people connect with you? I have a website, www.carawinger.com. My social medias are 
Instagram at Kara Throws Jav, K-A-R-A-T-H-R-O-W-S-J-A-V. That is also my Instagram and Instagram and Twitter handle. And then Facebook.com slash Kara Throws Javelin. Thank you so much for your time and attention on this episode of the Thrive for the Cause podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please share it with a friend and subscribe for more episodes in the future. I want to leave you with a quote by Dr. BJ Palmer. You never know how far reaching something you do say or think today can affect the lives of millions tomorrow. I want you to know that you matter to Colorado Springs, so get out there and thrive for the cause.